Alright, ladies and gentlemen, a warm welcome to Daily Power Parsha, our daily look at the Torah portion. Today is Wednesday, October 6th. This week is the Torah portion of Noach, which means that it's raining insights because the flood is brewing. Okay, so yesterday we spoke about the continuation of the story that we started on Monday, and we spoke about the... Um, uh, the magnitude of the flood, we spoke about it from a Kabbalistic perspective, and a Hasidic perspective, the idea that the flood is less of a punishment, more of a cleansing. Um, by the way, I forgot to mention yesterday, the questions asked in Kabbalah and Hasidic philosophy, why is it that God chose water to destroy the world? He could have destroyed it with fire. He could have just simply, as you may know, based on the uh, mystical doctrine of constant creation, God didn't have to do anything to destroy the world. All he would need to do is not recreate it in that moment. Does that make sense what I just said? It's like a projection, right? A projector. Do I have to like, okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm screening a film, right? Like, uh, I don't know, Jewish summer cinema perhaps. Screening a film, do I need to like project something else onto the screen simultaneously to black out the first one? Of course not. All I need to do is unplug um, the projector and it's done. So why does God need to bring another force to counteract the force of life on planet Earth to destroy it makes no sense. Just pull the plug. That's what leads the mystics to conclude, that's part of what leads the mystics to conclude, that it's not simply about punishing, consequencing, I'm using it as a verb, it's not simply a consequence or a punishment or a an act of destruction, it is rather a cleansing, which is why water is used, it's very symbolic, etc. All right, so that's, we spoke about that yesterday. I wanted to add that wrinkle that I, that I neglected to mention yesterday. Yeah, Joy. But isn't water also life? Did I miss that? Water is life, yes. It's cleansing and rebirth. It's kind of like regenerating life from a new perspective. It's like a new womb-type experience where um, now there's womb to grow. Boom. Room, to, room to grow and be radically different. In the way it was. Um, my puns are here all, all week. Okay, so that is that was yesterday, and then we read about how the waters are receding, and how he first sends the raven to ascertain whether the land is dry, then he sends the dove. I spoke about raven and dove, and trauma, and psychology, and spirituality. We spoke about that yesterday. Now it's time to jump in to our next reading for today, which is reading number four. Okay, here we go. Torah reading for Noah, reading number 4, Genesis chapter 8, verse number 15. God speaks to Noah, and this is what happened. And God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark. In the Hebrew, it's tzei min ha Leave the ark, go out of the ark. You and your wife and your sons. Oh, hold on. Now we can pay attention to the, uh, the gender sequence. We have you and your wife. Aha. Uh -huh. And your sons and your sons' wives with you. So now we have the genders are not divided, Noah and his sons, Noah's wife and their wives. It's Noah and his wife, the sons and their wives, which is the, the nod, if you will, that life can resume in all of its different uh, forms and all of the various forms of relationships, etc. So this is the great command to leave the ark which of course evokes the question, do you need a commandment to leave the ark? Wouldn't Noah be, and the animals and everybody be running off of that ark after being 
um, claustrophobically um, sequestered in this floating island of, I don't know if it's an island, but this floating space of, of chaos for a year. I mean, it would, you, would see, you would think that you don't need an, an, a commandment to leave the ark. And yet, the mystics tell us that if that's our perspective, then like Noah, like, sorry, like everyone else other than Noah, we'd be missing the boat because the meaning of this, the meaning of this is that in fact, the, the ark was not an experience of negativity or drama or chaos. It was rather an experience of sublime um, transcendence, or we might call a messianic type state, which we've talked about in various contexts before. A symbol or a, um, an enactment, I'm not going to say reenactment because it hasn't happened yet, but an, an enactment or a taste of the messianic era, a time when people will get along with each other, no more fighting, a time when the animals won't destroy each other, a taste of that reality occurred during the Great Flood. And it occurred on that ark, on Noah's ark. That's when humanity, those few human beings that survived, and the animal kingdom experienced what life would look like if we all got along, which is a very important piece of Mashiach, of the Messianic era. It's not the whole deal, as you and I know, because we've studied this on multiple occasions, including in the JLI course, this can happen. Of course, there is a spiritual component and other components as well. Um, sovereignty and, and a temple and all that good stuff. But on the ground, the way it manifests in day-to-day -day life, in our interactions with our fellow, the Messianic era is a time when there's no jealousy, there's no anger, there's no violence, there's no war, there's only peace, love, and tranquility. And this was experienced on the ark. The world was a crazy place before the flood. During the flood, the world was also a crazy place because of all the destruction and, well, let's just call it cleansing or purging that was going on. And you might imagine that notwithstanding the physical claustrophobia, the notion of leaving that spiritual cocoon would be perhaps foreboding. In other words, Noah might have preferred and the others might have preferred to stay in this idyllic state of spirituality. And here we have the great command, Tzemenhateva, leave the ark. God says real life is not lived in the ark. Real life is lived out in the real world that sometimes is, um, that sometimes is, is hurtful and dangerous and sometimes is threatening. But that's where real life happens. So, so to kind of uh, um, make this a little bit more contemporary, and I may have mentioned this the other day, I don't remember if I did, but going into the ark is um, synonymous. And for us, for you and I, we're not building an ark, there's no flood physically, but it's synonymous for us with the idea of moving into a space of Torah study, moving into a space of prayer, moving into a space of mitzvah observance. It's kind of like when the world is crazy, when everything is, is, is gama sugar, it's about finding that place of inner serenity and spirituality where we can go away, you know, get away from, from the craziness and, and just connect with our soul, with God, with our purpose, with, 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 our, with our spirit, our, our higher being. It reminds me of those um, Southwest commercials. Remember those Southwest commercials? Like the guy at the office deletes like all the files and he's looking around and then it says like, want to get away? 
Southwest. It's like a, it's like a commercial for booking a flight and just getting out, getting away. But like sometimes we just we want and maybe more than want we need to get away. We need to get out of the fray. We need to 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 move to a more uh, serene environment. And that is what the teva. That's what the ark is. In fact, if you look at the word teva, which is ark. Hateva means the ark, but teva means ark. Teva also means word, W-O-R-D. The word for word is teva. So it's a word, it's an ark, and really the, 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 two, the two words are, are synonymous because what is a word if not an ark, right? An ark is a box that contains something else. A word is our characters, a, a composition of characters, that contain an idea. So you take the letter C-A-T, so those are just characters, those are just letters, but you put them together, it forms a word, but the word is not just a, a combination of random letters, the word means something, it means cat. Now you picture a cat, you know, an actual creature, right? Beau, for example, and others. So a cat, right, Don, a little shout out to Beau. So a cat, is a, 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 it means something. So the, the language, is a container, so the letters C-A-T are not actually a cat, but it's a box, it's an ark, if you will, it's a container that contains the message, the meaning of, uh, or the idea of, of a cat. Anyway, long story short, going into the ark also means going into the word, teva, which is ark, also means word. And so when life gets crazy, when Mayim Rabbah, when the many waters are raging around us, financial concerns, other material concerns, just craziness, um, Facebook hearings, etc. What do we do? <clears throat> we go to the ark. We go to the table. We go to the word. What word? The Hebrew words of Torah study, prayer. We do a mitzvah and we get away from the craziness to connect to our higher self, to, to navigate to, um, to our core, to who we really are. However, this is where verse 16 comes in. At Rabbi, some... did they have mana? How did they sustain themselves? No, they didn't have mana. They, they, they didn't eat the animals. They were told to bring in vegetation. They were told to bring in food. And I guess somehow it was a miracle that the food was enough to last and that it didn't spoil or go bad. So clearly there were miracles involved because, you know, I don't think they had refrigeration back, back in the day or preservatives. Um, so there was clearly some, some, you know, extraordinary measures that happened, but that's how they ate. But here's the big idea of verse 16. When God says, go out of the ark, I asked before originally, why do you need a commandment to leave? Wouldn't they be running out? No, not necessarily. Sometimes it's easier to go into the ark. Sometimes it's easier to get away from the craziness and just, you know, not, not drown in a negative way, but like, that's no, like the wrong terminology, but immerse ourselves rather in Torah study and prayer and in mitzvah observance. At some point in time, though, God says, go out of the ark, right? Not that Torah study ever ends or prayer or doing a mitzvah is not a good thing, but that God also wants to translate <coughs> the spiritual, the spiritual um, fever that we've accumulated to bring it back into the real world. This is a classic Chabad idea, the idea of bridging the spirit and the matter. It's not enough to escape the matter and, and cleave to the spirit. We have to bring that spirituality 
back down. We've had it in you know in innumerable contexts, including the death of the sons of Aaron, of the Venaviu, when they were they had this spiritual ecstatic experience and didn't bring it back. Bottom line is, Tsemenateva leave the ark means there's a time to pray and a time to go to work. There's a time to study Torah and a time to engage in a time to eat. And the, the idea is that even in those mundane activities, whether it's working or eating or otherwise, we integrate the spirituality with it. All right, let's continue with verse 17. Hope that made sense. Um, the, God continues to command not only Adam, sorry, not only Noah and his wife and the three sons and the three daughters-in-law to leave, but verse 17, every living thing that is with you of all flesh, a fowl and of animals and of all the creeping things that creep, up, that creep on the earth, bring out with you. In other words, everything must go. Take out all the animals, all the birds, all the creepy crawlies, everything shall come out of the ark, bring out with you, and they shall swarm upon the earth. I love that. In other words, let them swarm the earth, and they shall be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. Originally, God had commanded every living being to be fruitful and multiply. Here, God reiterates the command. You can imagine that there might have been hesitation. Should we bother, right? Is it going to be destroyed again? Like, it's, imagine if you knew that when you painted a masterpiece, someone's going to come by, you know, rip it up and, and, and throw it away. So then you're not going to bother after, after you know, you're not going to bother if that's, the, if that's the protocol. So here God says, be fruitful and multiply and hasn't yet given the promise not to do this again, but we'll have that soon. Verse 18, so Noah went out. That was the command. Now here's how it worked out in practice. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him. Now here the genders are divided again, which raises a curious question. Why, is the, why are the genders divided again, male and female separate, even though they were given the green light? Right? Because it says again, verse 18, so Noah went out and his sons, so that's all the men, and then his wife and his son's wives, the women. Um, it could be that there was, I, I'm sure the commentators discuss it. I think I believe that this is what the commentators say, that there was some trepidation about being fruitful and multiplying. Because again, what I just mentioned, you know, is this going to happen again? Are we wasting our time and just, you know, creating devastation and heartbreak? And we'll see soon that God promises not to do that again. Verse 19, every beast, every creeping thing, and all fowl, everything that moves upon the earth according to their families, they went forth from the ark. So God commanded, and indeed, thus, thus it played out, every living creature left that ark. Verse 20, what does Noah do post-flood? First thing Noah does is he brings an offering to God. And Noah built an altar to the Lord, and he took of all the clean animals, that means kosher animals, and of all the clean fowl, the kosher birds, and brought up burnt offerings on the altar. How did he know to do this? He knew. He knew. It's, there was a tradition to bring sacrifices to Hashem. Adam brought sacrifices. So there was a tradition. When God, and I mentioned this a few days ago, when God told him to bring seven of certain types of animals into the ark, well, that was a clear indication. Sorry, seven pairs of, of the kosher animals. That was a clear indication that... Um, that that was meant to that something special was meant to be was meant to be done with these animals, and indeed Noah brings them up as offerings to Hashem. Let's continue verse twenty one. And the Lord smelled the pleasant aroma. This is of course a um, 
a phrase that we'll have later on in Torah, in the book of Leviticus, when it talks about the offerings, the reach nichoach, the, pl- the pleasing aroma. And we talked about this uh, when, we, when we covered Leviticus. Not that God has a nose to smell, the, the barbecue of the, of the meat, but it's rather the idea that God gets nachas, that we, on our own, reach out to Him and say, God, this is for you. It's a special thing. And that's what happened here. Noah, unprovoked, brought an offering to Hashem. Here we go. So the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will no longer curse the earth because of man. For the imagination, in other words, I'm no longer going to doom the world because of the actions of humankind. Why? For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. In other words, what are you going to do? Human people are people, right? Ah, they're messed, they're, they're flawed from the get-go. They're not, they're imperfect. And I will no longer smite all living things as I have done. So God says, never again. Not going to do it again. Not going to punish the earth. Not going to smite all living creatures. Why? Because human beings are human and they're flawed. They're innately flawed. I need to ask you this question. Did God not know this before? Did God not know that human beings are innately flawed, inherently flawed before the flood? He well, created them that way. He created them that way. He, God knows our flaws better than we know our flaws. By design. So what's going on here? So God created us. Things got out of hand. God says, that's it. I'm fed up. I'm done. This is crazy. Not, this, is, this can't go on. God destroys the world. Then, after the flood, God says, you know what? What are you going to do? People are people. Are people. You know, they get out of hand. It happens. But I'm not going to do this again. Would he change his mind? Look, if we believe in a fickle God and a God that's created in our image, right? If we, if we create God in our image, so we've been indecisive or we've changed our minds about things, right? Not only that, it's a sign of growth. Sign of growth. I used to think this, but now I think that. For a human being, maybe that's a good thing, or that's a thing. At, at the very least, a thing, maybe even a good thing. But when it comes to God, we don't believe in a God that learns as he <laughs> goes along. We believe in a God that's beyond time, right? That's perfect, beyond um, all the limitations that we have. You know, we have a very limited framework of things. We only see this, we don't see that. We're stuck by time. It's all, all those limitations are applicable to us, not to God. So how do we conceive of this notion that God sort of changes his mind? It's a, it's a good question, and it's a question that arises again. Yeah, Joy, jump in. But he also, it also says that he said it to himself. Did he say it to Noah? Did he say it out loud? Yeah, I'm with you. Sounds like he's talking to himself. I mean, we're not going to admit it, but I we mean, all do. He take it back later if nobody heard it. Yeah, it's like, ooh, what? oh, wait, who got the transcript and published it in the Bible? Like, who did that? Who leaked it to the press? Unbelievable. These whistleblowers, I'm telling you. Unbelievable. Zuckerberg is dealing with a whistleblower now, and God is dealing with a whistleblower the same week. Unbelievable. Now God's hands are tied. Anyway, but what's going on? What's really going on with this whole, with this whole situation? There's different ways to look at it. One way to look at you know, a classic way of understanding it is, you know, this is after the flood, after the cleansing, as we explained before, and thus, it's never going to get as bad as it got, because there was a layer of, 
You know, I go to this car wash place on Ponce. It used to be called Cactus Car Wash. They had a big cactus. Then they took that away and it became Mr. Something or other. And they also bumped up the prices. And I'm not going to get into a diatribe about that. Bottom line is, they always try to upsell you on the car wash. You ever notice that? It's always an upsell. It's like, how much to wash the car? Well, I hope you're sitting down. I'm like, yeah, I'm in the driver's seat. I'm literally sitting down. All right, so here's the, if you want just a basic wash, 25 bucks, sure. An interior, whatever. But honestly, that's for, uh, that's for amateurs. What you want is a thing with the wax, a thing with the, sh the seal, with the this, with the that. Because otherwise, the car may not make it another five miles. And you're like, oh, well, I don't want that to happen. So for sure, upsell me. So it's a bit, and, but what they promise with this stuff is, if we put the seal on or the wax on, whatever they call it, you know, and, and then they have these neon lights that happen. If you upgrade, they give you a neon light show. I'm like, you know what, it's worth it just to see your car with the cool lights. Other than the, the plane, just water and soap sutsing it up. That's like, again, it's the amateur hour version. Anyway, back to our story. If you protect it, then it's just not gonna, it repels, right? It repels the dust and the grime and the sap from the trees, so no big deal. Now, of course, it doesn't, but it does, it does help. You know, it certainly does help for a certain amount of time. The flood created a layer of cleansing that lasts forever. It's like the ultimate wax for the car that would never, you know, dull or diminish or disintegrate. This is a layer of cleansing that remains. And therefore, and therefore, um, it, the world can't get as depraved as it once was. It's just, it can't get to that place. So before there was a valid rationale, at least from God's perspective, valid rationale. I'm not justifying it, but God had a rationale for undoing. Not undoing, but getting rid of and cleansing. But once it's cleansed, it can't be get back to that, to that really you know, horrific state. And therefore, it's not going to be destroyed. So does God change his mind? doesn't change his mind. The facts on the ground have changed. There's a layer of cleansing. That's one way. The other way to explain it is in a similar way that this is reflected in the offerings that, that Noah brought. We don't, have, um, we don't have much recorded of offerings. I mean, the offerings that we, that we know about in the, the written Torah, I'm not talking about the Midrash and the Talmud, the written Torah is Cain and Abel. Remember Cain and Abel, they brought offerings? God liked one, not the other, and that created a whole kerfuffle. Anyway, so offerings were brought, but I don't know how often they were brought to God. I mean, idol worship was, was rampant, but Hashem, mm, probably not, not as common. After the flood, Noah brings these offerings from these animals that he brought into the ark, the extra animals. Um, and it says that God liked that. God, it was pleasing to God. That here the human being is unprovoked, unprompted, of his own decision, of his own mind, saying, God, this is a gift for you that pleases God. And that sounds like it triggers God to say, you know what? I'm not going to do this again. Was it a gift that created a bribe, that created a change of mind about the situation? I don't know. Uh, the God doesn't work as simplistically as that. That's not the God we believe in. Does it have to do something with the cleansing? Yes. Is there a combination cleansing and offering? I believe so. It's the cleansing and manifest in the offering. Now Noah is bringing an, unprovoked, an unprompted offering that's indicative of the cleansing that has occurred. Okay, that's, that's kind of my take on it. I hope that makes sense. Donna? Yeah, um, do, 
Did Noah, was the ark in the same place upon exiting as it was when they entered? And do we know where that was? It's a great, it's a great question. I believe it was in the similar vicinity. Um, we would have to look a little bit more closely at the verses. But it says that, that, the, that the ark landed in Mount Ararat, I believe. Let's see, let's see yesterday's, um, yesterday's reading. Yeah, the mountains of Ararat. Hare Ararat. Now, where is that? Beats me. I've seen reports that, oh, they found something that looks like an ark near Turkey. I mean, who knows, right? Everyone's trying to claim it to get some tourism, to get some money. But, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure where those mountains of Ararat are. There may be a Jewish tradition that I'm not familiar with. But that's where it landed. That's where the boat, that's where the ark. The Garden, so. of, the garden of Eden was Israel, right? Canaan? Yeah, but they didn't, li- they didn't leave from the Garden of Eden. Remember, Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were already, exp- oh, you're saying where was that? In- yeah, it sounds like it was a physical place. It wasn't just a, you Garden know, of Eden. Yeah, they weren't, right. They weren't, it, I think somewhere, yeah, I'm going to say Israel. I mean, that's. Canaan, I think because I read that in the commentary. Yeah. That that gives proof that. We the land Israel was given to us. It works for me. <laughs> sure, I'll take it. I'll take I'll take more proof. Um, okay, good. Let's continue. Um, oh, oh, by the way, also I just want to say something else. Um, the power of impression. The power of bias. Maybe is a better word. Bias. B-I-A-S. You could look at the same fact and interpret it two different ways. So here's the fact. Human beings are inherently flawed. That's your fact. What do you do with that information? Got to get rid of him or have compassion on them? You decide. You with me on what I just said? You have the same fact but two different conclusions that are opposite conclusions. Right? Human beings are inherently messed up. Therefore... One person says, get rid of them. The other one says, have compassion on them. They're only doing their best. So this is kind of the way that these two, um, two halves of the narrative play out when it comes, with, um, when it comes to, to God and, and humanity and humankind and the world itself. So the, the, act one is where God says, human beings are flawed. They're messed up. This is crazy. Everyone's out. And then God says, oh, the human being is flawed. The human being is, you know, that they're a struggler. What can you do? We're going to have compassion on them and not, not destroy them. This is the power of bias. In this case, what we would call a negative bias, which led to destruction, and a positive bias, which leads to forgiveness, or at least patience, because the Lord, God knows we need, we need God's patience. Um, yeah, powerful idea. So just, it's a good reminder also. Any information, any fact can be viewed at, viewed in numerous ways. Sometimes we think that our way is right and absolutely right. Not so fast, not so fast. There's an equally valid, usually, way of reading it, you know, something else. And it depends on just who we are. It, it's more about the one who's interpreting the information than the information itself. All right, enough said. Verse 21. And the Lord smelled the pleasant aroma. Oh, no, no, I did that already. Verse 22. This is the middle of God's promise not to destroy the world. So long as the earth exists, 
sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. This prompts our sages, the commentaries, to tell us God is promising here. Let me just clarify before I tell you the conclusion. God is promising to know, to never again disrupt the seasons, the days, right? The planting season, the season seasons, day and night. That means that during the flood, during the year of the flood, everything was topsy-turvy, including the seasons, day and night, which I alluded to a few days ago. But this is the verse where God says, I'm, not, I'm, I'm no longer going to disrupt that. Sounds like it was disrupted. All right, let's jump in chapter 9 of Genesis. And God blessed Noah and his sons. Here we have a blessing. Specifically to humankind. And he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. By the way, who is the mitzvah for? Who is told to be fruitful and multiply? The The man man or the women? The man. You should know in halacha, there's uh, the mitzvah to have children. It's specifically given to the men. I, I, I've heard a cute, <laughs> I don't know if it's cute. I've heard, a, I think it's cute. I've heard a cute interpretation. For, for, the, for the women, you don't need to give a mitzvah. For the men, you have to tell, say, oh, it's a mitzvah. Hashem said. Yeah. Anyway, some, something to, to think about. Anyway, God tells Noah and his sons, God tells the men folk, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Let's continue verse 2. And your fear and your dread shall be upon, the, upon all the beasts of the earth and upon all the fowl of the heaven. I want to explain what that means. Your fear and dread means the animals inherently, listen to this, will be afraid of the human being. In other words, will not start out with the human being. You might say, one second, we're, out, we're outnumbered, we're outgunned, right? Human beings, there's only eight of us on planet earth. You have all these animals, all these different species of animals. If we have more people... Okay, so we're going to get the numbers maybe slowly but surely in our favor, but (coughs) the animals are going to kill us. So God says, don't worry. The animals are not going to attack you. The animals will be afraid of you. You should know that our tradition tells us that as long as a human being is is a mensch, animals don't attack. When the human being looks like an animal, then the animal finds (coughs) finds a, a provocation to attack. Now, I'm not suggesting that you meditate and you channel your inner mensch and then you jump into a lion enclosure. That would be simply reckless. And this is not the Rabbi Ari guarantee that you've been waiting for. This is not stamped with that Rabbi Ari um, risk-taking daredevil guarantee that this is not stamped with that stamp. Engage at your own risk. The bottom line, though, is that it says that when a human looks like a human, an animal recognizes the humanity and stays away. When a human looks like an animal, all bets are off. And I don't mean physically, I mean all across the, um, all across the board. It reminds me of the story where the fellow fast for 40 days and 40 nights, or I don't know, maybe whatever, 40 days, maybe he snuck in a little bit of water at some point because he wanted to merit the, um, or maybe he didn't eat certain things, uh, whatever it was, in order to merit a prophecy of Elijah the prophet. And he goes to his rabbi, rabbi after those 40 days and he says, it didn't work. There's a tradition, whatever the tradition is. I don't even know the details of the tradition, but there's a tradition. And I didn't eat such and such things and I still didn't merit Elijah. And the rabbi says to him, yeah, my horse also didn't eat those things. And it also hasn't merited to see Elijah. Okay, that's a bit of a diss, but the point is like this, that just because we may have abstained from one thing or the other doesn't make us a mensch. 
we still might have those other traits. So it's not, it's not a simple thing to look like a mensch. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a holistic, it's a full body and soul, mind and heart experience. Let's continue inside. So again, your fear shall be upon all the animals. Let's continue upon everything that creeps upon the ground and upon all the fish in the sea, of the sea. For they have been given into your hands. All of, all of existence is subservient, if you will, to you, human being. Um, not, not that you should do whatever you want and destroy it and abuse it. No, God forbid. No one's talking about that. It's about leading it and guiding it in a healthy way. By the way, when the human being abuses the world, that ends up in the flood, right? Remember how the corruption seeped into to the world itself? And that was at the hands, ultimately, of the human being. Human being caused that downfall. So the message is, don't corrupt the natural environment. And I mean that literally and figuratively. Okay, let's continue inside. Every moving thing that lives shall be yours to eat. Like the green vegetation, I have given you everything. And this is a brand new thing. I've mentioned it before, but this is a brand new thing. Basically, at this point, God greenlights eating animals. Doesn't mandate it, but says you can, if you wish, eat living beings. When God initially spoke to Adam and Eve, he said, you can eat the vegetation. Now God says to Noah and Noah's uh, um, progeny, every moving thing shall be yours to eat. Trees don't move. If you see a moving tree, you may need a new prescription, right? <laughs> uh, I want to take what you're taking. I mean, right, if there's a tree that's moving around, then we got, we got other issues. So every moving thing is, it's not even a euphemism, it's a, it's a, it's a declaration that now animals are permitted to eat. And it says, like the green vegetation, they are like a salad, right? You can now have a chicken salad. If you want, you don't have to. You can, you can if you want. However, now that you're allowed to eat meat, there's one, there are parts that you cannot. And that one of those is the blood. But flesh with its soul, which its blood, you shall not eat. The blood is not the soul is spiritual, blood is physical. But the blood carries the life of a living being, which is, you know, the, the, the physical element of the soul is carried through the blood. That's the life force. Don't eat the blood. But your blood, of your souls, I will demand an account. Uh, you'll see here the translation is going to get very vague, and this is why we need commentary. But your blood of your souls, I will demand an account. What does that mean? God sounds suddenly angry. Like, wait a second. You're letting me eat a steak. You're telling me no blood. Sure, I got that. But your blood of your souls, I will demand an account. Like, what do you need? Like an invoice? What, do you, what, what? you need a receipt? You need me to itemize something here? What's going on? Let's continue. We'll get to Rashi. From the hand of every beast, I will demand it. And from the hand of man, from the hand of each man, his brother, I will demand the soul of man. This is the prohibition against murder. The prohibition against killing another is stated in this, in these, th this and these verses. Whoever, verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, through man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God he made man. I'm going to unpack these in a moment. Actually, right now, let's do it. The first thing we have is God tells Noah, you can eat meat. Then he says, but don't eat the blood. And then he says, speaking of blood, don't kill each other. Does that make sense? 
And the one who commits a capital crime and, and murders someone else, his blood shall be shed. Right? Whoever sheds the blood of man through man through the courts, shall his blood be shed. This is the green light for capital punishment in the Torah. It do, it's not considered to be an immoral punishment if you took the course a few years ago, Crime and Consequence, the JLI course, one of the most magnificent courses that I've taught about the criminal justice system through the lens of, through the lens of Jewish study. So it, we explained that there, there is, a, 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 there is a, a, a view out there today, which I'm not discounting, it's, it's a, it's, it makes a lot of sense, that says capital punishment is wrong. Because what do you gain by killing someone else? Doesn't bring back the person who was killed. What's the point? Forget about the fact that, you know, so, so we, we might get it wrong and you can't reverse that. Forget, forget the, the, the innocence project element of it. Even if they're guilty. We know they're guilty. They say they're guilty. Uh, whatever, however, you might get 100% certainty that they're guilty. Somebody might argue and say it's immoral to kill. It's immoral to take someone else's life, even if they took someone else's life in turn. It's not right. So why, why kill them because they killed someone else? It's like uh, eye for an eye, everyone goes blind type thing. What's the point? The, the counter argument is no. Um, um, irreversible, irreversible crime, irreversible punishment. Right? Ultimate crime, ultimate punishment. That's the counter argument. Torah clearly is, God is clearly prescribing to the latter opinion and saying it's not immoral, inherently immoral. There is a place for it. Now, of course, in Jewish law, it can only be applied with 100% certainty. I got to tell you this. You know what? Let's finish this off, and then I want to tell you about a podcast. All right, here we go. Let's continue. Kurt, Kurt can I ask you something specific about this? Always. In Rashi, he says, But your blood, even though I permitted you the taking of a soul with regard to animals, I will demand your blood from one who spills his own blood. Yeah. And that goes on, uh, of your souls, this includes one who strangles himself too, even though no blood came out of him. In other words, it's talking about suicide. Correct, correct, yes, correct. Our sages tell us that in, embedded in these two verses is also an admonition against taking one's own life. Correct, correct. Um, and again, it follows the context. I mean, it, it all comes in the context of now taking life for food, don't take human life, right? Don't drink the blood, don't spill the blood. Take the life, that life, but don't take that life. But you could for capital punishment, but don't take your own life. I mean, this, this is the conversation about life and death and the preservation of life and all of that. That's exactly that. And it's not only if you spill blood, even if you did it without spilling blood, it's still a problem. And homicide also. You say, oh, I didn't spill blood. I just used a pillow. Sorry for getting dark on you there, right? That's also a problem. That's also problematic. Okay, let's continue. Um, oh, and in the, it's in this context. Look at this. In this context that the Torah reiterates, in the image of God, he made man. Right? It's not, it's, it's what's the core issue? It's you're messing with God. Taking a life, you're messing with God. Let's continue. Verse 7, and you, Noah, you be fruitful and multiply. I mean, he's 601. No big deal. But I mean, you maybe Noah and humanity in general, be fruitful and multiply, swarm upon the earth and multiply thereon. I want to speak about DNA. And this is going to be a little off topic, but I feel very, um, 
I was going to say excited, but passionate about this topic for right now, for the moment. I've been asked many times, and I've asked the question in classes many times. You may have heard me bring up this topic of discussion and not close it out. That the question is, you know, in Jewish law, to be liable for capital punishment in, let's say, a murder case, there have to be two eyewitnesses that saw the perpetrator murder the victim. And famously, even if the witnesses see the guy chasing the other guy, they go in behind the wall and the guy runs in after and the guy's dead and the other guy's holding the knife, not enough to apply capital punishment. We did not see what happened. And you might say, but come on, isn't it reasonable to assume that yes, sure it is, but not to take a life. When the Torah says that capital punishment is applicable, which it did right here, it's only when there's 100% certainty, which is only born of very specific circumstances. And thus, we've been asked lately, what about DNA? Would that rise to the level of eyewitness testimony? In 2021, is DNA also a slam dunk conviction in Jewish law to be liable for death penalty? Although there's no bet then we're not actually applying it, but conceptually, would DNA work or you still need eyewitnesses? So I've been listening to a podcast lately that's about DNA. I'm not going to tell you the podcast or the case or spoil anything, but I'll tell you this. Joy, are you listening to this? No? Maybe? No, I, want to see, I want to know the podcast. The podcast is called Suspect. It's called Suspect, and it's produced by Wondery. It's an incredible podcast. It's a nine-part series. They've released seven of nine. It's absolutely incredible, but I feel like now it's going to be a spoiler a bit. Shoot. See, you made me do it. <laughs> Anyway, here's the deal. Here's the deal. I'm just going to say it as vague as possible. The fact that there is DNA doesn't tell us how the DNA got there. Does that make sense? All it tells us is that the DNA is there. It doesn't tell the story of how it got there or why it got there or when it got there. The DNA doesn't tell a story. All we know is that DNA is there. And in a world in which the DNA technology, detection technology, has advanced so far that a speck of skin, a flake of skin, can show up and be tested and be matched, the question is, does a speck of skin mean that the person was even there? Or were they holding on to someone else's pen at some point earlier that day? That's all I'm going to say because I've already said too much. But it's incredible when you realize the limitations of DNA. Now, if it's a case where it's like, anyway, certainly there are, there's, there's, there's a, um, a wide spectrum of, of, uh, of DNA evidence. I'm not talking about how sure the hit is, but how big the sample is and how obvious the sample is, etc. So there's a wide range. But at the core, at the core, DNA doesn't mean finding someone's DNA at a crime scene does not mean they did the crime. Does not mean necessarily, let me add that word, that they did the crime. So getting back to this point, the Torah does. God does allow for, provide for capital punishment 
in a case of murder. That's what we're talking about. Taking someone's life, death penalty. With the caveat, you have to know they did it. Not you have to think they did it, or believe they did it, or be almost sure they did it. You have to know, not beyond a reasonable doubt, but 100% that they did it. Otherwise, you can't apply the ultimate punishment. How do you apply an irreversible punishment if you're not 100% sure? And the only way to know is if someone saw it happen. Without that visual corroboration, everything else is speculation. Inclu- All right, that's my question. Yeah. If, what if you have video which shows a person was there, you have DNA which confirms which person that was, but you don't have any witnesses? Good, excellent question. You're saying you have now a few pieces together yeah. and... Good, good. Like a witness, the DNA is like a witness. Yeah, good. Excellent, excellent. I don't necessarily have the answer. But there's something about it that still doesn't feel 100% to me. Something about it, now that's just me personally. Something about it, just knowing what we know with video today. I mean, maybe not like five years ago, but video today is not... Look... Deep fakes, there's ways to like, there's ways to, to create artificial video. I'm not trying to get into conspiracy stuff here. I'm just saying the fact is, what you see is not necessarily what exists. Now, you might say, well, even eyewitness testimony. How do you know what you saw? Yeah? Somebody could be putting on a realistic, uh, you know, a full-on realistic situation. I, I'm with you. I'm with you. And it may be that a modern, again, it's not even applicable today because there's no Betin that's doing capital, it's not even a thing. But theoretically, if there was a Sanhedrin, it could be the Sanhedrin would say, oh, you know what, in this case, we, it's possible. Anything's possible. But it's, and it, we'll leave it as a question, I don't know. But there's still something that to me is a little bit um, less than 100% slam dunk. Anyway. All right, that's it for today. We veered off into true crime, which is, you know, hey, that's uh, always, always a good topic of conversation or an engaging topic of conversation, at least to me. Um, what's the moral of the story? The moral of the story is, let's review a few themes for today. Number one, sometimes you got to get into that arc and get away from things. But don't stay there too long. There's, there's got to be a time to come out. And if you're, if you're procrastinating, God's going to knock on the door and say, let's go, time to go, time to go out, out of the ark, let's go, let's go, let's go back into real life. Can't hide, can't hide from real life, you got to get back into it, bring the inspiration back in, make a difference. Message number one. Message number two was, well, what was the other message that we had regarding the, what was it? Hold on, let me pull this back up. Um... Oh, oh yeah, bias, bias, personal bias, information, right? Information that you think, oh yeah, this information, therefore this. All right, not so fast. How much of that was objective versus subjective? We all have our subjective biases. The more we recognize it and own it, the more understanding we can be of others, creating a world in which diversity is tolerated, right? Again, there are exceptions to every rule, but the bottom line is we can, the world can use a little bit more tolerance and that is born of a sense of diversity, that's born of the recognition 
that I'm biased, you're biased, so if it works for me, it can work for you, etc. Um, and finally, finally, when God says to, uh, to Noah about you know, the animals and, and eating and everything, we're reminded about our role to be good custodians of the earth. That although we have this incredible power, this incredible um, response, uh, gift, it comes with, a, with an incredible responsibility. And we are custodians of, of the world. Our job is to enhance it, improve it, take care of it, um, tend to the garden, never, God forbid, to destroy it. So that's the final takeaway, at least for me, for today. I want to thank you for joining. As always, DPP, don't forget, set your reminders, whatever that is, for 7.30 p.m. tonight. Or you can join us in person. And uh, join us, you know, you'll start heading out, what, 7, 7 o'clock or so or earlier. Join us tonight, 7.30 p.m. in the shul upstairs in the synagogue space, sanctuary space for Torah studies. We'll be doing it on Zoom as well. It's all about the Torah portion. The, the, um, the subject this week is Torah and science or science and faith. Not as distant as you might imagine. So join me tonight for that conversation, bound to be um, intriguing and inspiring, 7.30 p.m. Don't forget, tomorrow night, 8 p.m., Curious Tales of the Talmud on Zoom, and look at some point for that special announcement, which will be hitting your inboxes within, I'm going to say safely, within the next 24 hours. All right. Have a wonderful day, everybody. Joy, Donna, Mark, Sarah, Olia. We'll see you guys. Yes, cool. All right, pleasure. Great to see you guys. Take care. All right, bye.